Welcome to the Sound Ideas Podcast. This is episode three. This is going to be a conversation just with me and Frank. We're going to basically just walk through a couple of his recent journeys uh, on kayak on the Pacific Coast. So thank you very much for joining us. Hello, guys. Nice to be here, as I usually am. <laughs> and yeah, just uh, talking about... Uh, I guess we decided to talk about this just, uh, well, last week I, I, I just kind of on a whim did like a two-night kind of three-day little solo journey in the kayak. The nice thing about living out here in North Van is you can kind of step off and and, uh, and disappear into the wilderness for a couple of days to kind of reset yourself. So, yeah, I just kind of, there's a place between Squamish and in North Van called Porto Cove, just uh, got dropped off there and paddled about 12k over to the uh, Gambier Island, just had this beautiful beach to myself, did some writing, did some uh, some reading, had a nice beach fire, and the next day I did like a 50k lap around uh, Gambier Island, camped one more night, and then uh, cruised on into Squamish, downtown Squamish, kind of like a hobo, I stashed my kayak under a bridge once I got there. And then walked a few hundred uh, meters to visit my buddy Dave Beresford, who I I kayaked the inside passage with this past summer. And then I walked over to the house on Brew Pub and had a beer. And that was my uh, a little bit of pre-trip. Yeah, carbo loading. Yeah, it was just kind of my 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 journey. Just something last week. So I'm oftentimes like I think everyone's probably getting it right now during COVID. You're kind of cooped up in in your own place and. There's not a lot to do, so um, it's good just to kind of go out and get your own space, and that's what that's what the wilderness provides. So, um, but yeah, and that's uh, this past summer, as you mentioned, just on a whim and as kind of a backup plan, uh, I did a thousand kilometer sea kayak journey from Squamish uh, up to Prince Rupert. So basically, more or less the entire BC coast by kayak with uh start off with three of us and then two of us went all the way through so how long did it take you 27 days so, so. pretty good swift pace really mm-hmm. i mean it wasn't an extended journey like some of yours you know 60 90 days per se yeah i mean the inside passage is kind of something that's done by by a fair number of kayakers like it's it's something that's done probably every year but usually people are stopping along the way to pick up supplies at some of these some of these towns, so some of these um, basically indigenous, like First Nations, coastal villages along the way, you can stop in and, and resupply your food and your groceries and stuff like that. But because we kind of left at the in the height of the pandemic in May 2020, May 10th, um, basically all the coastal First Nations, and I think still now even they're they were not uh, they did not want visitors basically because they didn't want to be exposed to the um the virus so we had to kind of go self-contained so we carried 30 days of food with us right out of the gate and um and that was uh that was the mission so we had 30 days within which to do this journey um and it basically it 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 arose out of the fact that i was i was going to be going up to ellesmere island which is nunavut um so the one of canada's territories and we were going to do like a 400-kilometer ski trip in May. But then obviously when, I think on, on March 24th, Nunavut shut the border to um, to uh, outsiders. So And even people who were from there, like residents, had to quarantine for 14 days outside of Nunavut to get back in. So we had 
basically no chance of doing our journey. So quick little scramble. What could we do locally? And um, I was originally going to do it with one of the guys that I was going to go skiing on Ellesmere with. He was keen. And then COVID at the last second basically took uh, his his business was collapsing in Banff and he had to kind of basically get out of a lease and they had to liquidate the business. So he had to deal with a bunch of personal stuff that pulled him off the trip. So it was just me, myself and I. And so I just kind of reached out to a few people and um, some people wouldn't do it because basically they were kind of, you know, really taking literally the stay home, stay safe kind of ethos um, and provincial parks were closed and all this sort of thing. But I was looking at the practicality of it. If we're 30 days in the kayak and not seeing anyone else, I mean, we're we're the ultimate kind of quarantine. So uh, eventually scrabbled around and my friend Dave, who I mentioned earlier, he had just been laid off as many people were at the time. And so he suddenly had, uh, you know, a month to to do a journey. He, and he's a, a kayaking buddy of no mine. He's, he's very competent, great guy. So ended up being like the ideal partner to kind of have along yeah. on the journey. Yeah. Shout out yeah. to Dave Beresford, who mm-hmm. is, you know, uber competent adventurer, kayaker. So he's taught, he's been kayaking his whole life and mm-hmm. is a bit of, bit of a legend. But so yeah. You, and even Dave, he, it wasn't just like, Hey Dave, let's do this trip. He said, he, he was like, okay, sure. But he was more like, Ooh, I don't know, you know, about the perception of what people will think. And, and, and so he had a lot of concerns about the kind of the stigma attached to it at the time. Um, I mean, by probably by July, August, everyone was out there doing stuff because then it was okay to be in it. But that, in May, it was kind of like this whole, you know, stay cloistered in your in your homes kind of thing. Um, and they had shut down all the provincial parks in the entire province, so they were definitely discouraging people from going into the outdoors at all. Um, but uh, it was not legally uh, bad, and, and in terms of on the face of it, we were going to expose ourselves to far less people than people who are cloistered in their homes and going to the grocery store, for example. So, um, yeah, so Dave kind of came around and he kind of just talked to people. And one friend of his in particular, this guy, Ty, who's a buddy kayaker, he was kind of saying, yeah, I'm kind of thinking about maybe doing this, this inside passage trip. And the guy goes, well, what are you waiting for? This is the perfect opportunity. You know, you have the time and, and why wouldn't you do it? And that kind of gave, put him over the edge to kind of confirm it with me. So, mm-hmm. Um, and then we had a third buddy of ours who kind of just within the last week or two before we're about to leave, he asked if he could join us for like the first five days. Um, Sean Mahar, who we both know. And um, he basically had gone paddling with Dave a couple of times, really forgot how much he loved it. He'd once done a trip from Prince Rupert and around the outer coast of Vancouver Island back to Vancouver. And so he hadn't done this stretch up to Lund before. From um, And that was a solo journey for Sean? For him, yeah. So he did like three months, just kind of an ambling solo journey. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. That was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. for a bit of context, of course, so the trip started out of for Squamish, Squamish. exactly. Both trips that we're talking about. So the small weekend getaway, the three-day he did. Uh, I finished you, in Squamish. You, that was just last week. You started in Britannia? Porto Cove. Or Porto, Porto yeah. Cove. And then the, the big trip that you did last spring of 2020, um, started in Squamish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Squamish is kind of like people don't know it. It's it's kind of a very outdoor rec centric kind of place. It's at the end of a, a long fjord, House Sound. Uh, the Squamish River flows in there, uh, surrounded by the coast mountains on both sides. And so we basically started from where the Squamish River hits House Sound and just paddled off there from the spit, where a lot of people kiteboard and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, one sunny morning on May the tenth. 
um, off we went. So I remember we did this pose. There's a shot of us. It's the three of us, and we all have our arms extended. So our, our, our fingertips are just not touching. So we kind of were showing that, hey, we're social distancing. We had that six-foot spacing right out of the out of the gate. So, um, of course, once you get on the trip, you're living. You're not social distancing out there when it's just the three of you. You know, you're everything. Basically, once you hit the water, you know, life returned to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no one telling you what to do. You're not going into busy spaces with yeah, people. Yeah, three so, close yeah. friends in your bubble <coughs> and fully self-supported and also three sort of industry professionals who've been kayaking their whole life. So very competent, very little chance of uh, injury or rescue scenarios given, you know, given the experience that was in that trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So very different from someone buying a kayak and just deciding to go on an epic mission. Yep. Yeah. So definitely we, we have the experience and, you know, in many ways, I mean, it's a lot safer to being your kayak going along the coast than it is driving your car to the grocery store, Stati- statistically even. Grocery so, store. That's, yeah, where the, exactly. that's where it happens. That's where the germs are, and that's where the accidents happen on the way to it. So yeah. departing from Squamish, <laughs> of course, you go out, how sound, um, cruising out towards the strait, and then did you just tuck up the coast? Name some of the cities or towns you would have gone by on the way just to give folks a bit of contact for the beginning of the journey. Yeah, so we went like House Sound. Yeah, it's probably about 30K to get out of House Sound. So basically going along the the west coast of House Sound up into Gibsons, which is it's kind of the, the first town on the Sunshine Coast. Um, people are familiar with the beach uh, combers. That was... Uh, that was where it was based right there. So a little, uh, little kind of a village town. And then we just hung a right at Gibson's. And then once we turned at Gibson's, then we headed north. So basically headed south to Gibson's and then hung a, hung a right at Gibson's and then north the rest of the way to Prince Rupert. So, um, and actually the, the first night we actually did like, um, it was kind of a bit of a surprise, but basically Dave knew where we we're going to camp the first night. It was about 28K out of Squamish and, it's kind of the last of this kind of chain of marine campsites um, along the whole west side of of House Sound uh, called Bain Creek. And so we were up there, Sean and and um, and Dave and I. We showed up and get to this uh, campsite, beautiful campsite, kind of creek running through it. You know, get our tent set up, and we kind of walk up to this nice, beautiful open rock, and it kind of looks across to the to the west. And we have this kind of bit of an eyesore, which is Port Mellon. It's like a big pulp mill that's been there forever it's kind of like uh perpetually got the two two uh smokestacks you know pumping out effluent but you know it's very bc it's very coastal it's kind of 10k away in the distance and then something caught my eye i remember i looked down and there were like for some reason there are two other kayaks just at the base of this kind of cliff we were looking down and it didn't make sense because that's not the landing spot to come in i thought oh man there's going to be other people you know wanting to use a campsite and but why are they there and i didn't pay much more attention to it but then about probably five minutes later these two girls come screaming out of the woods um and it's uh, our friends amber and roseanne and and roseanne works at persephone which is one of the microbreweries in uh in in gibson's and so they brought like about 40 beer and uh so we proceeded to have basically our first first night kind of bonfire party on that on that point um, right off the bat. So that was our, our kickoff because basically Dave, they're good buddies with Dave and I know them as well. And they basically, Dave said, oh yeah, we're going to be camping here. And so they totally did a, a sneak attack, uh, ambush, send off kind of uh, thing for us there on, on Bain Point. So 
Um, yeah. So a pretty solid start to a wilderness adventure. <laughs> you know, you were well provisioned. Um, yeah. So we had a bunch of beers that night, but then we had, we had enough beer for the next three nights after that, that Sean, Dave and I could have a beer. Um, cause Sean only had five days worth of food in his kayak. He could put the extra beers in there. So we, we managed to, you know, crack a beer every night until Sean stepped off from the trip in, in Lund. So that was a luxury, yeah, a luxury send off. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, basically after that, we didn't touch down into any communities on the Sunshine Coast until we did a quick tap in at Lund where Sean, um, was, was getting picked up by his father-in-law. So we basically, instead the Sunshine Coast is actually quite populated. You've got Seashell, you've got Roberts Creek, um, you've got Egmont, you've got Powell River, all these kind of, you know, significant towns that are on the Sunshine Coast. But we went way outside, so we basically, after Gibson's, we just shot it straight for Thormanby. So probably off about three hours of sleep from the kind of the, the party, the bonfire party, we did 60K the next day from that point um, all the way out to uh, Thormanby Island, which is kind of a remote little island off of off of the Sunshine Coast. And the next day we went to Texada, outer coast of Texada. So kind of took the most remote kind of island hopping west side route all the way up um, the Sunshine Coast. And then two nights camping on Texada. And then we cruised into, into line. And it was, there was one with, with, with Sean, he was kind of an interesting kind of mix. Me and Dave aren't like big fishers and, or, or kind of harvesters of the sea. But uh, on Thormanby, Sean collected all these, you know, uh, uh, amazing kind of oysters. So we had um, kind of checked to make sure there was no red tide so you don't get the toxic shellfish poisoning, which happens in the summertime often. And then so he boiled those up. We had those that night. And then the next day we went to Jedediah where we harvested some more. We had those on Texada. And I remember last night in Texada was kind of we had this beautiful kind of beach kind of cove site. And the sun's kind of setting over over um like vancouver island in the distance and in comes this like mastless sailboat um kind of putting in this little engine just into our bay just you know the first kind of boat we've seen out there because all the recreational boats are shut down there's no cruise ships right now um and uh the ferry service is cut to almost nothing so we didn't see anyone until this guy kind of cruised into our bay and i remember him he kind of came in he had kind of a skinny kind of beard kind of a, a kind of a bit of a flotsam and jetsam kind of boat and I remember he cruised right into the bay and he kind of goes is this where the rainbow gathering is man <laughs> and and rainbow gatherings I just happen to know what those are there's there's basically this they're kind of like original burning man type gatherings but basically it's a gathering of like those kind of street kids you see on Granville Street and the, and the kind of the homeless kids and that I sort haven't of thing. heard that term in a very long time and <laughs> I can't yeah. You know, pull the context, but yeah, rainbow gathering. I think I'm thinking, you know, hippie mm-hmm. kind of free spirits, you know, it's almost like this like un- underground festival word of mouth festivals that just spring up in kind of fields and stuff, you know, across North America. And the people that go to these are often these like street kids. It's like largely it's like street kids, you know, buskers, these kind of people who don't have any, any actual homes or living on the street, you know, uh, they're, they're hopping trains and all that sort of thing. This kind of very uh, loose kind of uh, esoteric, you know, niche of people that kind of gather. So so this guy was one of those people, that, you know. And then uh, he saw the three of us on the beach there, and he just kind of— He was stoked. He, kind of, pull, yeah, he kind of pulled up short, and, and 
This was not the the rainbow gathering for the record. (laughs) Exactly. So he kind of said, oh, well, and he kind of sees us and you see he doesn't really want to camp here. We don't really want to hang out with him. We didn't know his name. I just called him Cyrus. He seemed like a Cyrus to me. So he actually pulled ashore. He didn't He did not pull ashore. He just hung offshore drifting in the shallows kind of thing. And and we were talking to him. How old was this fellow? I'd ballpark him around maybe 40. Yeah. Okay. Cyrus. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Maybe mid 40s. And basically, you know, he was basically doing a 90K little, you know, he was moving apparently from Quadra Island, which is the north, down to Hornby Island, you know, kind of from one hippie island to another. Mm-hmm. And uh, on his kind of way, um, so he just kind of hung out there. And then and then uh, he said, yeah, moving to Hornby. I said, oh, you got friends there? I said, I sure hope so. And he just kind of hung out and he rolled the joint. I remember he just rolled a big spliff and then he kind of... Uh, just kind of lit it and turned around and off he went into the yeah. into the sunset. Kind of like something out of Mad Max, kind of like a you know this post apocalyptic yeah, kind of post apocalyptic like kind of world. This small, is small like <laughs> beat up massless sailboat with yeah. this, this this gentleman on a soda. Exactly. So who knows where Cyrus went? But but it's kind of these these people you meet along the way on these long distance journeys. Then of course me and Dave talk about Cyrus for the next you know, month basically. He's the legend of the whole trip. <laughs> well, you suddenly. make, you make up stories about them. You know, you kind of say, well, I wonder what Cyrus is doing now. Well, he's probably the mayor of, you know, Hornby Island now. He's probably got a whole harem of ladies and he's pretty much, you know, in this post-apocalyptic world, he's, he's a, probably a, a real, you know, leader and go-getter. He's our future. So uh, just make up stories about Cyrus along the way. So it's always any, the few people you do meet, on these journeys, especially when it's so remote and when the coast is so empty because of the COVID, uh, you remember everyone. And Cyrus is one of those memorable kind of characters. So, yeah. yeah. So for geographical context, <laughs> I think most, most of our listeners will be familiar with the Sunshine Coast, the Gulf Islands, et cetera. But right now, I mean, you're just, you know, a day's travel by car and ferry kind of from Vancouver. So, mm, yeah. uh, or, you know, if you were to fly, it'd be, it'd be a 30, 60 minute flight, but you're kind of right on the precipice of kind of getting really far, yeah. from, you know, from the, from the city. Yeah. So the next day after we saw Cyrus, we went up, went to Lund and that's where Sean stepped off. Um, and his father-in-law was coming up there and do a couple of days of fishing. And then after that, that's kind of end of the road. And then we went up into basically Desolation Sound and the Discovery Islands. And that's where we kind of really kind of stepped away from, um, you know, once you get away from the roads and that kind of road access and that population, then then there's no really no more towns. We didn't see any more towns until our, our finish at Prince Rupert. After that, so that was basically day five of a 27 day trip when Sean stepped off. So, so yeah, no towns per se. Did you cruise by a few hamlets, a few homesteads? Et we kind of there only there, there were yeah, there's a few you know you'll see cabins and stuff like that. I mean, when once we got into the Discovery Islands, um you know, beautiful kind of, uh, you know, rocky and, you know, these kind of, uh, you know, very, very, you know, temperate, old, temperate kind of forested islands. Um, and you got the whole coast mountains, the steep coast mountains all the way along one side. Um, but, uh, the only, I think the only, we saw one boat out there in the discovery Island slash, um, desolation sound. And that was, um, like an OPP, uh, sorry, OPP, the RCMP, like a, a police, like patrol mm-hmm. and they just totally ignored us but uh their, their presence was kind of there and probably because no one's at their cabins and stuff right now they're kind of just keeping an eye that makes sure people aren't going and pilfering and, and then at one point we went through this area called the yakalta rapids in the discovery islands which is 
it's a very um, because of the the flush of water through this this narrows of islands. It's really rich fishing, and there's like 16 fishing lodges on in the Yakalta Rapids, and this kind of cl- clustered along the edge of this kind of area. But all of them were shuttered, so it's completely quiet. And so instead of people out there, there was like literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of seals like in these rapids just fishing happily. Usually they would have been scared off and and driven away probably by the, the lodges and all the motorboat traffic. And there was one guy we saw there on the shore, and he was the caretaker of one of the lodges, just kind of maintaining it, I guess. And, and I said, oh, and it was like the May long weekend. And I said, oh, it was pretty, pretty quiet for a long weekend. He goes, yeah, it's going to be like this all summer. They shuttered these lodges for the whole summer. So so that hasn't happened in, obviously, memory there. And then, uh, yeah, we kind of uh, cruised on our, our merry way that night. I believe we, you know, we, had, um, we saw a bear. There's a grizzly at our campsite that we rolled into. And then uh, we kind of rolled in there, and there was a big steamer of, of, uh, of, of uh, shit there, basically, right uh, in the middle of the grass he was grazing in. And, uh, but he just kind of, um, meandered off. Yeah. Meandered off when we got there. And, and then, uh, yeah. So we saw a lot more kind of mammals like seals and, and bears and, and wolves and that sort of thing than we did, uh, people along the way. It's almost like we were going through an area that's, um, almost pre civilization, never mind like pre pre colonialism. Cause even like the first nations folks weren't out on the waters. They were staying in their, in their communities and stuff too. So that we didn't see, you know, kayakers or even uh, recreational boaters and all that sort of thing. So we're kind of, uh, it was kind of a unique way to see the coast that may never be seen again. Because um, since then, people have been out there more than ever as far as recreational. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's a lot of boats that can yeah. sneak up there with pretty minimal human effort anyway, and, you know, gas, cell power, what have you. Mm-hmm. Another thing about the, the spring, too, is that was another uh, one of many, many news items is, you know, American boat traffic, mm-hmm. you know, wasn't to come ashore in, in, in Canada. And um, so it was another, you know, not in my backyard, another NIMDB topic for people to uh, complain about or be on guard. I think my favorite was the uh, the yacht, the mega yacht that kind of came into Vancouver for quote uh, mandatory repairs. Hmm. It was uh, it was uh, it was good. It's like you get you can flex a little bit, I guess, if you're a billionaire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and same thing. We saw because the U.S. border was closed, we didn't see. You know, I think it's about thirty thousand. You know, pleasure boats will ply the inside passage every summer. A lot of them Americans, right? They're coming up from Bellingham and the states and the whole coast west coast of the states and uh they weren't coming up at that point either so that also made it uh, extra quiet yeah and i mean our american friends are more than welcome to come up it's a big part of our, our economy as tourism um so it's interesting to see tourism in general as uh these small hubs you know kind of turn against their primary means of revenue but mm. for health and safety and i totally get it yeah. um but uh yeah, yeah so yeah, so after like Yakalta and then we pushed north into like the Broughton Archipelago, um, which is another basically Telegraph Cove, um, which is kind of a middle-ish of Vancouver Island. That's kind of the, the jump-off point to there. But we didn't didn't go into Telegraph Cove, but that's kind of just a geographical reference. Um, and that's when we started getting into the, into the kind of the bigger water, so more exposed. There's a whole section basically from the Broughtons up to the north end of this this. Um, uh, area called Cape Caution, and there's a, basically a gap between the north end of Vancouver Island, and then there's another archipelago, you know, a couple hundred k north of that called the Haida Gwaii, and but that's where the big you get exposed to the the wide open ocean on this 
on Cape Caution, which is there's, a very, there's basically about a 20K section where you literally cannot land anywhere. So you're basically committed to to going around that in, in whatever conditions it gives you. Uh, and usually if you have lots of time and resupply, you just kind of wait for as long as you need to for that glassy kind of weather window. And Dave and I, we were moving every day, so we kind of thought we'd we'd done it the right way, but we we didn't uh, we didn't really. So um, uh, basically, we we kind of worked our way north. Um, it's probably a couple weeks into it, um, or not even a couple weeks, and we kind of heard there's a big gale happening or coming in. So we kind of tucked into this deep bay called Buckley um, Buckley Bay, and we'd we'd actually been pinned about a, two days before. We'd been We'd be pinned in by a gale wind. We tried to go out, went 3K, and just got dead stopped by this huge north wind. And so we kind of circled back and log walked all day and just kind of explored around. I found, I found actually, you know, and when you're in a situation like that, you're kind of pinned in by a gale. You, uh, you know, you, and a be- amazing log walking beach. There's a boil point, and you could go back and forth and never touch sand on this kind of matrix of fallen, you know, logs and, and driftwood and stuff like that. And looking around for the coveted glass balls, these old glass balls that they used to use back in the day, which you can sometimes find. Um, but I found actually a, a a plastic bottle with a little message inside, and uh, it was uh, actually from like a church in like Indiana, and they obviously cast these little bottles with these little conversion Bibles inside, and it ended up somehow deep in the in the driftwood pile there. So that was one of the treasures that uh, we found amongst the driftwood. So. Sage wisdom on exactly. the beach. Exactly. exactly. Now, the way you've discussed the journey till this point, it was it sounds so leisurely, the way you, you obviously narrate of, of your journey. How grueling was it? And until that point, was there much exposure or was it more just long days on the water, occasionally getting stopped, or was there heavy weather or, or points that it, were... Um, yeah, I mean, the weather started getting heavy once we left the... The Broughtons, I think. Um, so we were camped in this one island called Sedge Island. It's kind of a deep cleft with an with an island protecting the mouth of it. But once we paddled out of there the next morning, then we had the kind of the big north wind was kind of building and pretty big waves. I remember going by this huge, this island of basically a, there were hundreds of sea lions on there all kind of barking and waving at us. And they, they're kind of intimidating the sea lions. They're kind of these giant, you know, thousand pound male stellar sea lion. You know, they can, you know, they're, they're way bigger than our kayaks um, in terms of weight and girth. They could easily, you know, knock us over or whatever, and they're very territorial. So they're all kind of going crazy as we were kind of going by them, these really big kind of, you know, six, seven-foot seas kind of working our way past this kind of With these monsters colony, all <laughs> these around. These monsters all around us. Take you out in any given moment exactly. if they wanted to, which they obviously don't. Yeah, but. and and then we kind of kept going along there. We got into almost like a bit of a rip where there's like a tide going out with the wind coming in. The waves are totally jacked up, and we just rode this out. Um, it's kind of almost like being in a river when the tide kind of was flowing out of a channel. So flowing pretty hot and then the wind pushing against it to jack up the waves. And then we worked our way to this boil point where we ended up getting stuck because it really ramped up, you know, by the next day. Um, and I remember we walked in the boil point looking for the campsite and I, I walked down this trail, um, just trying to find, there's like a trail. Okay. It must lead to the, where you can put the tents in or whatever. And I get down there and then there's a, I see a mother, and three cubs, like about probably 30 feet from me, I kind of came over and surprised them. And the mother is kind of like, kind of her teeth back and she's kind of growling at me. And the three three cubs just went, each one shot up a tree right to the top of the tree. 
Um, and Dave was like, you know, he was about a couple hundred feet back on the beach and all he saw was suddenly bears in the trees. He didn't see the mother and everything else that was going on there. So I had to kind of Frank's gone. Yeah. yeah. Bears and trees. <laughs> yeah. And then, so I, I came back and said, that's no, not the campsite. There's, there's bears over there. And then camps have been being closer on this point. So, um, yeah, one of the, one of the, uh, yeah, one, one of these random memorable, you know, animal interactions you have on, on these journeys for sure. So people's fear of bears is, is, mm-hmm. is awesome and hilarious. I mean, my encounters with bears have been very mundane. I think twice both, I think maybe three times when tree planting at close proximity once, you know, there was a bear just standing around. So we backed off and left the other time I was in Northern Ontario with, uh, with a good friend tree planting again cruising along and he yells at me from a hilltop. I don't know if a couple hundred meters away, you know, there's a bear over there. There's a, I'm like, what? There's a bear. And I look back and it runs away and yeah, kind of on with your day. I mean, there's like, they're pretty much like big squirrels the way they act. Hysteria. The yeah. The hysteria surrounding bears is, is paramount, but exactly. I guess fear of the unknown. Yeah, my or... older sister was charged by a bear once also tree planting. Black once. bear or grizzly. Um, I believe it was a black bear, mm-hmm. but she was on a cut block and she was charged and she just got up on a stump and made herself look big. And I imagined, uh, had some good, uh, squawks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, she remains unfazed. She's yes, fine. She's fine. She survived. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was, yeah, then, so things kind of just steadily built in terms of like being bigger water. So we were stopped, like basically came, so the next day we paddle out 3K in kind of a lee. So you're kind of in the sheltered until you turn into the north wind. And then it was just like jacking up, pounding against this, we had to about an 8K section of this cliff we had to get through. And, but we were treadmilling, like paddling as hard as we can and not moving. Plus we had this heinous water ahead of us. So. So we took the hint, just kind of double back to that mm-hmm. that point, and just kind of had a had had. That was our one day we didn't make any progress, and that was uh, otherwise we had to kind of move every day because we had this kind of thirty day, you know, limit of, of food with us provisions. So and we yeah, if we were not going to go into any communities, then um, yeah, we had to kind of stick to that that kind of uh, parameter. Um, and and also what you get there, I think uh, yeah, probably in the Broughtons and and. And and a little bit farther north of the Broughtons, you have these fish farms, um, which are kind of these kind of mostly usually there's someone there. But I remember at one point in this really we were again riding kind of rip out with the wind coming against us, kind of north of the Broughtons. It, it was again another kind of Mad Max moment. There was this kind of big these fish farms. They're kind of a, there's a diesel generator in these things that kind of. Um, uh, I guess keeps everything operational, but it was an, it was an abandoned one. It was kind of like half unmoored, kind of floating in this big, big kind of um, this kind of rip in the waves, and it was just like a big metal, you know, box on a barge with this kind of half tattered kind of. Uh, I think all the fish had probably escaped at that point, but we were basically on this rip going right by this kind of like humming, you know, generator powered. Just you know, ominous monolith. It's kind of like it's kind of this, yeah. And we're in this, and then you're these huge, like eight foot jacked waves, and you're kind of going by this thing, and there's no one around. It just felt like it's the end of the world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, also kind of perfect that it's in front of a fish farm, which is such a contentious issue here on the coast as well. Well, that was the fish farm. That that barge and everything yeah. was that was where the guys were supposed to be who were supposed to be monitoring this and it was just been abandoned yeah. basically so. so perhaps not anymore the covid fish farm 
but they forgot to turn the generator off, I guess. But, um, yeah, so, and then, um, yeah, then we pushed on towards, as I mentioned before, this Cape Caution area, which is kind of the big, the big crux. We, we talked to this thing called Buckley Bay. We thought we'd waited out this, this kind of gale that was forecast and deep in this bay in these bays off and you cannot tell what's happening on the outer coast, um, in this kind of gap between Haida Gwaii and, um, but basically it was saying there was a, and then the next morning we kind of got up and we're kind of, we kind of spent the afternoon thinking it would just blow through. And the next morning it said, um, yeah, the, uh, four meter swell is subsiding during the day to like a three meter swell, but there's a four meter swell coming from the South and the North, but it was apparently dying. And so we decided to, well, it's dying. It'll probably time it right. And that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. the energy from these storms takes a while to, to obviously dissipate. dissipate. And we ended up in just the craziest, uh, it was like the perfect storm on Cape Caution. We, and you're basically, you're kind of cruising along and we were kind of in a bit of a lee. We we're kind of, this kind of south swell was pushing us. These big kind of huge kind of rollers were pushing us. And then just as we got to Cape Caution, then, um, uh, then all of a sudden everything just went crazy because then the north swell met the south swell. And so you have this kind of two four meter swells meeting. And then also Clapidus is, is something that's, that basically happens when the when the ocean swell rebounds off cliff faces, then it bounces back, and then it'll double the size of waves. So we had this basically w- huge waves coming from three different directions, like thirty foot waves, basically thirty foot swell, and we're each of us was on our own because you can't really help each other in that situation. You're separated by the conditions, and you basically just had to you're just in it, and you also had like uh, wind and current mixed in there too. So basically dealing with five different factors and you just felt like such a speck, like, uh, Dave would disappear in this huge trough and I'd see him like, you know, 30, 40 feet down there below. And then he'd just be gone for a few minutes. Cause I'd look around, it would just be me either in the trough or in the top of a huge w- wave. The waves were breaking two directions over your deck, over your back. And you're just kind of, you're just trying to. You basically just have to, if you ever panic in that situation, that's when things go wrong. So you just have to shut off your mind and react and just do what you've been doing for years. If you think about what could happen or bad things that could happen. And both of us had like a, you know, a deck bag on our back deck, which would, would have been rolling a bit more difficult. And it was just like cliff face for 20 K and mm-hmm. stuff just booming off there. And you, you were just, you're just out there. But for, for me, it was like, it took about an hour to kind of get used to it. And then it kind of normalized and I just kind of shut my mind off and had this like a mantra just going through my head for like an hour. And I, I just, I just, uh, you, I just said, uh, I just went clear, calm, precise. And that's what, it, that's what I was doing. So I was just clear actions. I was calm in my mind and precise in my paddling. And, and that's all I did. And I just became like a, a machine or a robot. And t- so we did that for three hours, basically. Three hours? Yeah. yeah. And how did Dave uh, feel coming out of that? What did he have to say? Yeah, so D- Dave was, we, yeah, we couldn't really see each other too much. We like, came close enough to shout to each other a couple of times. And I mean, what do you do? You just got to move forward to get past the section. Because once you're in it, you couldn't go back because you had this huge swell pushing you. And the only thing to do once you're in it was to go forward. But I remember we finally got into the first lee after Cape Caution and, and Dave, you know, dry, you know, uh, Brit with his sense of humor, he goes, mate, that was like three hours of class four paddling. And, um, so Dave being, you know, he paddled all the hard runs like whitewater kayak runs over the years in the nineties and two thousands and later in the, in the sea to sky corridor, some pretty serious paddling. And, 
And uh, that was his assessment. So kind of like, you know, very stiff paddling for basically three hours straight without a break. And, and whitewater yeah. classes, of course, <laughs> the scale itself. Exactly, yeah. The, the class four. Only goes to. Yeah, well, five is like the, class six is considered unpaddleable. Class five is like the limit of paddling and class four is kind of like, you know, stiff. Like intermediate, a good paddler is going to have fun in kind of grade three water. Once you get in grade four, there's definitely, you know, bigger water. It's more technical. You've or, seen more me consequences. paddle. Yeah. It's been yeah. a long time. You yeah. stuck me in a decent white water boat right now. <laughs> How yeah. would I fare? Uh, yeah, it'd be a bit rough. Yeah. Probably, Probably make rough. it. Maybe take a swim. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it could be for sure. Yeah. Um, and one thing with sea kayaks is they are very stiff. So especially a loaded sea kayak, you've got like, you know, a couple hundred pounds of food and equipment in there and you really do almost stick to the water. And so you just trust. And then if you're kind of loosening your hips and you're just reacting like you should be, then there's not much that can take you down in kind of the deep water. And that's something that you kind of, we kind of realized after about an hour of, of moving through this. But, uh, and then that day, so we talked in for this, in this little cove for lunch and Dave's kayak was a little bit leaky. He'd chosen this kind of plastic Scorpio kayak. It's really? Like, it's like he chose it because it was the most comfortable boat he had, but uh-huh. it ended up having a lot of leakage problems. So he had like, going to Jones, he probably had like, you know, half a foot of water in his cockpit that he was dealing with as well. <laughs> so he was like, Extra my boat weight. was my boat was tight and it was, yeah. it was great. But, um, but Dave. Built for comfort, yeah. not for speed. Exactly. I'm surprised that he took a plastic boat because Dave. Obviously has a few options, mm-hmm. but it, you know, I guess it's a thirty-day yeah. trip, kind of yeah, off I the couch it, in the winter. His thing was like, not even off the couch. I mean, he paddles every week, anyways. But I think just if you're going to spend eight hours, eight hours in a in a in a boat every day, or, or nine or ten hours in the boat, then you know, instead of your legs falling asleep, that's um, that's kind of the uh, his priority in that case. And then, but he but he learned his lesson. But once you're out there, you just got to deal with the tool you've you've chosen so he had to deal with it um and then yeah after that we had about another 8k crossing that day and it was still like a big big kind of like seven foot uh steep chop as well so still uncomfortable conditions tried to look for camp at the other end couldn't find anything it was just all kind of rocky nothing proper and then we had five more k to go to this uh, place called cranston point and then it jacked up in terms of like big kind of, you know, the kind of swell where it's like about 50 to 100 meters between the peaks and you see them coming at you and they're just so huge and you, and it's just this thing just jacking, jacking, jacking and you're just hoping it doesn't break. It didn't break luckily, but big swell making it, you know, you know, again, you're very, you know, uncomfortable. You're on the edge. And finally in the evening we get into Cranston Point, tuck out of this, this rough water and there's a good guidebook for the area. Um, this guy, John Camantis, years ago, he basically mapped the entire BC coast for kayakers. So he, he basically tells you where these, you know, kayaking areas are there. Um, and it said, yeah, good, good camp in this, this spot and beautiful, you know, white sand beach. That's, that's the, that's the thing about the BC coast. It's like, there's so much like fine white sand powdery kind of beaches. It's kind of a magical area with big kind of, you know, Sitka spruce old growth forest around them. And so we go in there and then we land on the beach and Dave's kind of getting his stuff ready. I walk in to check out what the camp's like. And I, I come back out and I, I'm just kind of grinning. And then Dave's going, what? I said, oh, it's pretty good camp, Dave. What is it? It's pretty good camp. You're going to like it. Come on. What is, well, come and take a look. And so he goes, comes back there and someone had built this awesome cabin 
uh, like a, a bunch of sea kayakers had gotten together and built this kind of cabin in there with a wood stove, like a padded bunk bed, had like uh, reflective candles all around, um, and like a brand new cabin. And so instead of, you know, and it was like raining all day. So of the course. lap of luxury. Yeah. So from after like. After tenting. What day of the fr- trip from, was this? From Cape Caution, this roughest day of the trip, into this kind of. This oasis. Fabulous oasis. And what day in the trip? It's probably like day. I'm going to go maybe. It's probably about two weeks in or so. Yeah. Okay, so day fourteen of thirty. Yeah, halfish, halfish yeah. way. Okay, perfect. In there. Yeah, and a little more context, of course, Frank. You would have been in a fiberglass British kayak, a skeg boat. Yeah, I was. I was paddling a, a P and H Cetus, which is a a very kind of reliable, renowned, well built kind of. Um, Adam just spilled beer all over his belly. Not um, true. <laughs> Yeah, um, and then Dave also had similar style boat, just a plastic version. So I mean, with a fiberglass boat, you you don't want to run it too hard up under rocks and stuff like that. But it's definitely a lot more slippery and faster and more responsive in the water. It's going to be whereas a plastic boat, you can beat the crap out of it, but it's going to be a bit slower. And in Dave's case, comfortable. And also in Dave's case, unfortunately, his plastic boat was kind of leaky, so he had to deal with that through the whole thing. Um, he was definitely a lot of troubleshooting. Um, for now the, the stuff there. Yeah. I remember with this documented. I remember seeing Todd McPhee um, repairing a boat. I don't know if it was a story or as a video. Mm-hmm. Was that one of your yeah so, documented <clears throat> adventures or video? Yeah, if you it's called yeah. There's there's a it's on YouTube Frank Wolf YouTube channel. It's called um, Shining Island, and I did a basically 900 kilometer circumnavigation of the Haida Gwaii Archipelago. Back in 2005, and in that one, Todd McPhee, who is one of the my buddy Todd, and then Keith Clapstein was the other guy on that trip. Mm-hmm. And basically, the whole combing, which is where basically the edge of the the cockpit that holds the spray deck on, that whole thing had ripped off, like on day three, <laughs> off of his boat. And so Keith, who did nine years, you know, um, in the World Cup whitewater slalom circuit, you know, in fiberglass boats, he was a master of fiberglass repair. So we 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 had the, we were pinned in by this gale and inside this shelter, Keith did a bit of a masterful job to kind of uh, with fiberglass reattach that combing to. So with the repair yeah. kit, and that's a pretty delicate. That's probably the most delicate piece of the boat is that that round combing. It should never come off. I've never seen it before or since. But if it did, yeah. like to rebuild it, it's not like a flat patch on mm-hmm. the hull or in the yeah. Deck. The combing is 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 it, is it it's a it's a singular piece by itself. So it had basically had detached from the main body of the mm-hmm. boat. So. But uh, yeah, after after Keith repaired it, it was it was good to go. And and same with Dave and I, we had good, good uh, you know fiberglass repair kit and kind of a rudder kit. You know, you kind of anticipate any things that can possibly go wrong. Um, used a whole bunch of tape and and uh, and like uh, marine sealant and stuff like that to try to seal, you, seal up the stuff in Dave's boat. So yeah, any luck? He never quite could figure it out all the way. It was just Dave and his leaky boat. So even like early in the trip uh, on the Sunshine Coast along the west coast of Texada, remember one day we had this like big tailwind, you know, five foot like breaking wave, but it's just pushing us nicely. So Sean and I in our fiberglass boats, we were just flying, just mm-hmm. catching waves and running 30, 40 feet at a time. Meanwhile, Dave was kind of with a dark cloud over his head, grimly kind of slugging it out in his comfort, his, his, his comfortable boat. Comfortable. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but um, yeah. So so after Cape Caution and that, then we got into a basically a gorgeous area uh, called Hakai in the central coast of BC, which is you know if you can imagine just kind of 
um, like a pristine area, you know, little white sand beaches and coves, old growth forest, all kind of, it's all facing out to the open coast again between Haida Gwaii and, and, um, and Vancouver Island. But because you're in this archipelago, you can hide out in the islands and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. we did go outer coast on Hakai. So we did expose, we did get some pretty big seas exiting there, but, um, yeah, I remember coming into Hakai. We did this big long day, and there's a, a, a beach called Wolf Beach, um, just a beautiful, huge, pristine white sand beach. And again, no one around. Um, there's a community close to there called Bella Bella, which is one of the bigger um, First Nations communities up there. And we stayed outside, far away from that community. Didn't see anyone from the community either. So that just put us on the in really this just spectacular, you know, uh, archipelago of islands. Um, that we had all to ourselves. So that was kind of a, kind of a special, uh, time in there. We also ran into one, there's this guy called kayak bill who used to, I think he died in 2005 or 2004, but he used to live, you know, year round on the BC coast for about probably 20 years, just in his kayak. So he paddled a double kayak fully loaded and he had these kind of choice campsites that he'd set up. And you always know it's a kayak bill site when there's this kind of, uh, remnants of like an a-frame that he'd kind of wrap a tarp over mm-hmm. and so we ended up staying at one of his his sites there um and you know had a nice little prep table um good protection and um yeah he he was also an artist so all his art was kind of inspired by the kayaking stuff but he lived by himself in his kayak on the outer coast then he died on this remote area called the goose islands in 2004 um he was like an older guy by that point but uh kind of a, a legendary guy and you kind of feel his spirit in that place and why he loved it why he ended up living there um he used to be like a mountaineer who had a guy, bad mountaineering accident mm-hmm. so he couldn't do that anymore so he just kind of i think he had one kid and he got a divorce mountaineering accident all this stuff kind of drove him out transition to, to this kind of solo of the aquatic her, hermit lifestyle lifestyle out being there. a hermit yeah but his 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 stuff is actually it's beautiful art and he died and it's actually worth a, a lot of money if you ever find like an original kayak bill um, what medium sure. um it looks to me like uh, acrylic or oil it's a painting acryl- yeah it's painting yeah okay. exactly very colorful very bright yeah so um yeah so we stayed at, at the kayak bill in a site called dallas island um, just camped in, under these beautiful Sitka forests, just close to his A-frame on this beautiful white sand beach. And then the next day we kind of exited the Hakai area into like the inner channels of, uh, of the, uh, the inside passage. So mm-hmm. into the, into the protection, basically the rest of the way where we're no longer exposed to the coast because also you're then protected Haida Gwaii, which is a big long ar- archipelago out in the ocean kind of mm-hmm. knocks down the big swell there as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that was uh, that was uh, boy day twenty by that point. Once we got through Hukai. Um and probably like the 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 two most memorable days on that journey. Um, the one was the Cape Caution Day, where we kind of were, and that day at the end of that day, once we got to like Cranston Point in this beautiful cabin, I remember just writing my journal there with this nice fire roaring, and it was such a satisfying day because we'd been you know, challenged almost like beyond our expectations, but had really shone in, in the, in the, in our response to it, we'd gotten through it all and had this amazing finish. And then another one was not too far after the kayak bill campsite going into the, um, the inner channels, not too far south, this first nations village called Clem I took a wrong turn. Like I would, didn't look my GPS. I was just kind of 
randomly following like I, we had this very kind of uh the scale of the map was not good it was almost like a road map kind of in that little section mm-hmm. and then um, that's my excuse anyways but we turned up this thing called oscar channel when we should have been going straight up towards clem to but it ended up being like the most amazing wildlife experience of the day by doing this wrong turn because this, this oscar channel the whole wall was coated with sea anemones and sea stars and the whole way along oscar channel for about 15k we had you know sea lions like jumping beside our boat all the way along so this kind of colony of sea lions they saw us as soon as we entered oscar channel they came in it's like they'd never seen people before they were kind of waving their heads around and the young ones were were there with us and they were just kind of they just kept following us and following us and following us and then those guys dropped off and we came upon another sea lion colony they all poured off this cliff diving into the water and they followed us for the rest of Oscar Channel, just kind of like that's amazing. Yeah, like you they, had they an were entourage. Kind of, they were kind of porpoising, like right beside our boat. This spectacular exactly. misadventure. Yeah, and then as soon as we exited there, then we see this lone bull orca coming towards us. Oh wow! Probably going for the sea lions that we just had chasing <laughs> us, and then uh, and then we hung a left into uh, Jackson Narrows, which is an, a, another channel. So I basically about halfway through Oscar Channel, I said, "Shoot, we're in the wrong spot," because nothing seemed right. And then, well, we keep going this way and we go. So we ended up doing like a 20 kilometer detour. So a 55 kilometer day instead of a 35 kilometer day that, that day. And so just grinding like a long day. And, um, but then in, in Jackson, we saw this minky whale like feeding in the shallows. And once we got out of Jackson, Jackson narrows out into the main channel again, we saw a, um, a, uh, humpback, uh, the mother and her cat and their calf kind of, uh, you know, spy hopping and jumping in out of the water and splashing. And then we finally get to this little island in this campsite north of north, north of the village of Clemtu. And um, there's another humpback kind of feeding in the shallows of this island off there. So we, we pull up into the onto the shore, and it's kind of getting dusky now. And uh, beautiful, almost like this magical, like Jurassic Park Valley with like a 300-foot cliff wall on one side, old-growth forest everywhere, a beautiful stream running through it. Uh, really lush um, and just, you know, just like a utopia almost. And then so Dave and I, we had separate tents. So Dave was about 20 or 30, 30 feet below me and I was setting my tent up and all of a sudden this wolf just ghosts in out of the woods about like 10 feet from me. Like it didn't even see me. It was looking at Dave and I was just looking at it from the side and it was almost like I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I'm, I'm kind of whispering, Dave. Dave, there's a wolf, there's a wolf. And he's, he can't hear me because I'm whispering, trying not to scare the wolf away. And the wolf kind of glances at me and then just kind of, without sound, just kind of disappears down into the creek. And I kind of go, Dave, there's a wolf there. And I went down to get my camera because I want to get some video. But I thought I'd blown it and they were gone. And so then while I was away getting my camera, Dave said, I, I saw now I saw a black wolf. And I said, really? And then so I kind of stepped back in the woods and, and they're, they're just like, they're totally like ghosts. They can kind of blend with the forest. And the gray wolf I'd seen first, it kind of reappeared. And you could see he was kind of looking at me from behind the tree. And I got some video of it just kind of poking in and out. And then the black one, the female, smaller one, was mm-hmm. just over. And she was just kind of ghosting in and out too. And then I kind of just started following them. And the black one, I just because she looks like a shadow and there's so much shadow at dusk, she kind of was going. But I could see her kind of popping in and out of the green and a little bit of movement. I followed her back and I was walking on this big old growth stump and and then she disappeared into this hollow at the end of this big fallen old growth tree. Mm-hmm. And then I hear all this yipping, the kind of the yip, 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 yip. So they had a, there are cubs there. So they had mm-hmm. a den. 
so basically Dave and I had cruised in on their, their, their den site. And, um, and so I just kind of, you know, walked back and just kind of told Dave what I'd seen. And then, and then finally the, the gray wolf came one more time, just as I was finishing my tent. And then I got some, he was trying to, I was just had my head over kind of setting the tent up. And then I hear in the cliff kind of beside that cliff behind me, he was kind of one, like a branch snap. So mm-hmm. it, it kind of made that mistake. Usually the first sound I'd, I'd heard these things make, and I turned around, he was up on the slope and I got some really good footage of him just kind of walking. And then he knew I could see him and he just froze and sat there looking at me from like about 50 feet away. And I was filming him. Wolf yeah, versus wolf. Wolf versus wolf. And then he just kind of gave up and said, all right, you got me. And he just kind of ambled up the slope and disappeared. So, mm. so that was kind of the, 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 the right wrong turn kind of day. Yeah. So that day in terms of animal interaction and then that Cape Caution day because of the challenging nature of the day were probably the two most, I guess, memorable days of the whole exhausting journey. but magical mm-hmm. yeah at, at, after 55k once you had that interaction with the wolf you just forget about your exhaustion right you're just so jazzed with the moment and the experience so um yeah and then after that it was it was pretty pretty steady cruising uh we saw another grizzly at our campsite later on um beautiful campsite and really kind of rain got you know kind of 12 degrees and raining and but pretty calm going along pit island Amazing waterfalls cascading for hundreds of feet down uh, on one side. And then eventually uh, worked our way to this little island just before Prince Rupert, about 15K before town. We camped there, nice, beautiful beach. And there's another guy we saw. He, another guy came in in his boat, and he said he was there to watch for poachers, guys poaching his buddy's crab traps. And he kept trying to come over and offer us crabs. You know, he wanted to sit with us, and he wanted to, you know, he said, I don't drink, but I've been smoking weed for 35 35- 35 years. Do you guys want to smoke some weed with me? And he was like, we we're kind of like, it was our last night. We didn't necessarily want to yeah. hang out in our last night, you know, of this entertaining trip. Entertaining. Entertaining this know, guy who, who desperately wanted some attention. Talk. Exactly. So, I mean, he, he got the drift anyways. He, he was kind of a, kind of a Cyrus-like fellow. Again, a bit of a, a, a lone, lone plains drifter type guy. A lot of us have been that, that person, I think <laughs> this year, just looking for a, a chat, Exactly, looking for a good time. Exactly. So, so the next day we cruised into, into Prince Rupert. Um, and then I remember another friend, I'm not sure if you know him or not, but, um, there's a really good brewery in Prince Rupert called Wheelhouse Brewing and Craig Utet, uh, he used to work at the, at the co-op in Backstock. He had actually met his wife, uh, Carolina, uh, Utet, her last name is now too. Um, she was a cashier at MEC where Adam and I used to work years ago, Mountain Equipment Co-op or MEC or whatever they call it now. Yeah. It's kind of an entity, it entity that doesn't exist a anymore. Real co-op. Yeah, exactly. But so they met there and then we knew them. And so I remember I, I texted Craig on our approach and said, Hey, yeah, we're in town. I said, are you guys open now? Are restaurants open or anything? Yet? He said, I said, we actually just opened this week. They just kind of figured out the protocols with the spacing and, and that sort of thing. And so, I remember Dave and I showed up at, uh, at, uh, at the brewery and then Craig's there and, and we just come off, you know, we hadn't seen anyone forever. So we were, we were well quarantined. We were clean of, of COVID. And then he, he sees me and I, I kind of go up and I give him a big hug and he, he's kind of like stiff at first, but then he kind of hugs me back and he goes, you're the first person I've hugged, um, besides my wife in three months. <laughs> and then uh, I said, okay, man, it's okay, man. I'm COVID free. And he said, yeah. And then, so he basically poured us beer freely that afternoon. And then his wife is a CBC. Um, she's the morning show host for CBC North. And then uh, went upstairs in his office there. And after 
with a bit of a beer buzz, she interviewed Dave and I about our, our whole journey, and that's how it wrapped up. Then we just literally rented a one-way car for 200 bucks to drive back to mm-hmm. Vancouver the next day. So yeah. Strapped things on the roof, yeah. gassed up in one yeah, way. Yeah, we got some two-by-fours from the home hardware and created a roof rack. Was that in yeah. May or June? That We finished in... We started May 10th. That was like June 6th we finished. Yeah. yeah so, so just just back in time for my birthday. Appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's why we came back. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. I mean, yeah. what a trip. And I guess just an impromptu as well after, you mm. know, coming out of, you know, well, backing away from now. Oh, now Frank is spilling beer on his, his self. There you go. I think Adam shook these beers for us just, just because it's been sitting there for like 10 minutes. I can't yeah, believe we it's don't know. Off. We don't know. But, um. Anyway, uh, quite an amazing journey, especially to pivot a last minute, find, uh, you know, uber competent, amazing trip partner. Yeah. And to escape, you know, right as everyone else is kind of moving through all the awkwardness and strife that, that uh, the year had thrown at us. Um, yeah. So this story itself, if you are interested, is actually going to be coming out. Um, I believe you've written a story uh, for yeah. Explore Magazine. The feature on it should be coming out probably the next week or two, Explore Magazine across Canada. Also, if you go to um, one of my sponsors is Kokatat. Uh, if you go to Kokatat, Frank Wolf, there's a, a photo essay. You can actually see a photo essay of that whole journey as well, as well as a video of the, the wolf encounters in there. Um, and then, yeah, you'd see the images from that whole, uh, the whole trip, you know, or paddling through Cape Caution, um, uh, all that sort of stuff. I think is Cyrus in there? I'm not sure if he is. He is in the Explore article, though. So yeah, you'll see see a lot of what I talked about in that photo essay. It's kind of a good overview of what we did. Yeah, and you can yeah. catch that through your website at uh, my website, uh, fwolf.ca, and F-wolf. that'll F-wolf.ca. link into it. Um, I also did a, a good write up on that wolf encounter in that day in Oscar channel. I write a, a blog for Explore called Way of the Wolf, so you can read about that there too. So, but. Um, yeah, and the and the photo essays are both kind of highlighted in the front of that website too. So perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can find us at sound.ideas.podcast at Instagram, and then you can also eventually you're going to find us at uh, soundideaspodcast.com as well. So thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for uh, drawing out the uh, the adventures, Adam. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks again for listening, and uh, have a great week. Bye. <laughs>